And let's turn to everybody's favorite and the most famous Christmas passage of them all, Revelation 12. I'm sure you were expecting that. Um, if you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up to Revelation 12. And uh, different than our normal routine, we're going to begin with reading from uh, the Word. So you kind of get an idea of where we're going today. You might not have an idea where we're going after we read it. That's okay, too. Hopefully I get us there. Um, and if I don't, the Lord will um, surely intervene. So uh, Revelation 12, not that hard to find at the back of your Bibles and just turn uh, back a few pages to chapter 12. And the scripture tells us, John writes to us in a very unique book that gives us an insight of uh, what goes on behind the scenes and what has went on behind the scenes in all of creation as God is working to bring redemption to every corner of the world, every generation that has existed. Listen to Revelation 12. Now a great sign appeared in the heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars, so a wreath of twelve with twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in the heaven, behold a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as he was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that she would feed, uh, that would feed her 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was there a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short Time, sort of an ominous ending to a very unique and I think a pretty thrilling passage of Scripture and uh, one that has a blessing in store for us, I believe. So if there is one chapter of the Bible that makes us think of anything but Christmas, it might be Revelation 12. Now, there's a few things in there. There's some wreaths and there's a birth of a child, and I think we know where that's going. But uh, this may not seem very Christmassy, but if there is one chapter of the Bible that resembles many of the stories, and think about this, it resembles many of the stories that are popular in today's world. Think fictional stories, of course. The things that are popular in pop culture, the things that are popular in our stories that we love to tell and watch and read and see. I think Revelation 12 has a lot in common with the things that we watch and the things that we read and the things that we consume. And again, the most popular fiction, books, television, or film, not only in today's world, but for generations, people love, or apparently they do because they keep being made and they keep being consumed, what is one thing that is common in so much fiction and so much uh, media that we consume 
that is in this chapter, but I think it's present in so many stories that we hear, that we watch, that we read. People love dragon-slaying stories. That there's something about them that just kind of intrigues our interest from young to old. We just love these epic stories where some great beast or some great monster, a dragon in many of them, is slain by some great hero. Isn't it fascinating? I, I love studying different cultures and all the things that rhyme across cultures that seem to have developed apart from connection to each other. The one thing that you can find if you study literature and art from all cultures of the world throughout all the generations, there are stories of dragon slaying uh, men and women across the map and across time. Now, every version and variation is a little different. You know, in Japanese fiction, you find a fire-breathing, terrible lizard named Godzilla. And uh, popular and influential, uh, uh, one of the most popular and influential storytellers of all time from England, uh, 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 Tolkien, of course, wrote The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings stories. And, and of course, in those stories, you find a gold-hoarding dragon named Smog. Uh, of course, those stories have inspired modern-day variations and versions from cartoon to live-action there are so many dragons in our stories, and there are so many dragon slayers in our stories. Now, of course, there are more um, ancient examples. If you read stories from thousands to 4,000 of years ago, uh, you'll read about leviathans and behemoths, ancient names for fire-breathing, scaly monsters. Um, you'll read about heroes of all kinds who courageously and epically fought and slayed these beasts. There's something in all of us that has been in every generation within the hearts of people from every tribe, tongue, and creed that resonates and relates to a good old-fashioned dragon-slaying story. Maybe, that, maybe you're not in that demographic, but a lot of people are. And don't you think that's wild? That across time and across generations and cultures, that if you tr trace back throughout history, the one common theme in our stories that we tell is dragons and the unlikely victories over them? I don't I think that's kind of just crazy to think about that it's something that we find throughout time and throughout culture. But you know, with entertainment in general, not just the dragon slaying type, it, it really comes down to, and the reason we love entertainment and we love things to, 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 to read and watch, um, it really comes down to escapism. We love finding some way to unwind and get lost and, and, and really you know, step out of the real world and think of things that really can't happen in, in, in the world we live in. We love the sensation and the spectacle, but I think more than anything, we love the escape. And, and now we may all be into high fantasy, but we do all love to be entertained. I think for this same reason, it offers us an outlet and a way to escape. And, and, and think about it. Why do we look for ways to escape? Why in some ways do we need, not just entertainment, but ways to find refuge, relax, and check out from our daily grind? And, and if you've ever been super stressed out, of course, none of you have, right? It's not 2020 at all. If you've ever been stressed out or um, strung out or run down, and if you say no, I'm sure someone would like to have a word with you to either ask you what your secret is or ask you, you know, uh, wondering why you're wanting to insult the rest of us. But if you've ever been super stressed out, and you go to someone for advice from professionals to friends, they would probably tell you, take a day off. You know, take some time each day to decompress. Find a good book. Find a game, a hobby, anything that helps you escape from it all. It won't make it go away, but it'll help you kind of get some relief. That's a healthy suggestion that I, I think most would give you. But let me just offer a bit of advice. You're going to need more than escapism to find relief that you really need. 
Escapism helps for maybe an hour or an afternoon or an evening, but it doesn't do the trick entirely. See, the real world just won't let us get away and unplug. Our minds keep racing. Maybe you're, uh, maybe you're like me. Even when I'm trying to enjoy something, even when I'm trying to escape, my mind continues to turn, and I just can't get some things off of it. There's something deeper within us. Something deeper within us keeps looking for more than just a chance to unwind. And this is why. This is why that I think Christmas has this universal appeal that it does. While more than any other season, more than any other holiday, it has an effect on all of us. Over the next few weeks, we'll have those moments that bring a peace and a perspective that we wish would never end. Isn't it true? We wish we could just capture it and stay in that brief moment or that brief period of time. There's just something about this season that saves us from the rest of the world and the many problems that we face. Now, they don't go away, but we feel like if only for a week or two, we can actually get away, even if they'll be waiting on us when the new year begins. Christmas really strikes me, or strikes all the nerves in our minds, and I think it goes even deeper than that. Christmas is the only holiday that speaks to our souls. You've heard me gush about this before, but we just sing one of my favorite songs, let alone Christmas carols, that I think perfectly captures what makes Christmas so different and so powerful. The line from Holy Night, Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared. And something about Christmas speaks to the soul, to the most inner being of every person, tribe, tongue, generation. Something about Jesus' birth that God would be one of us in the most lowly of forms. Something about that speaks to our souls. It gives us value that we can't describe, we can't comprehend, but we feel it, don't we? We give our souls over to so much. We give ourselves over to so much in this world. We attach ourselves to things. We cling to them. We are looking for something, something to identify with and feel represented by. This is why some of us are super passionate about a number of things. Our jobs, our jobs, our, our lives in some cases for certain trades or lines of service. This is why that we're so passionate about hobbies and while we, you know, whether it's animals or nature or arts or crafts or technology or film, we find a way to escape through all these. It's almost as if we see ourselves in them and find ourselves in them. And they, they say, if you really want something, you can almost will it into existence. And we, can, we sort of see ourselves in these hobbies or in these things that we get lost in, that we escape in, that we find ourselves in them. And I think we all crave and desire identity, representation and worth in a tangible and purposeful way that when we feel some connection with something, we latch onto it, we obsess over it, we make it a part of our daily or weekly routines. Now, maybe that's just me, but that's how I sort of make sense of how we are all so different, yet we're all so very similar. We all have our own interests and ideologies, yet in the way that we take to our own unique interests, we do it with a similar and in a similar fashion. Our paths may be unique, but our passion is similar. Isn't it true? We can be completely different, but you're passionate about something that I am not passionate about. I'm passionate about something that you aren't, but the way we go about being passionate is very similar. And isn't it true that the forces in this world, they are at work to empty us of this passion, the ability to feel and relate and embrace. Sometimes life beats us up and gets us down and we feel numb and detached from the things that we want to love and that we used to love and we work hard to rebuild those connections. And I guess I'm saying all this 
to articulate a very specific point. I think that Christmas embodies and offers the universal solution to what our hearts long for, universally our hearts desire. And that's why Christmas is so easy to get lost in and why we love it so much, or why I do at least. It offers a portal every year for all of us to step back to what it's like to be a kid again and feel as if all is well. Now, I promise we're going somewhere with this, and we're not finished with the dragon talk either, so I hope you're excited about that, but we'll get to that later. I, I say all this, uh, this longing that we have for escapism, how Christmas offers us this tangible, engaging uh, outlet, how it speaks to our souls, and, and something that is in all of us that, that is looking for a way to identify and relate and a way to feel valuable and worth something. I, I say all this to address something that some of the world may not understand especially secular culture that just sees Christmas as a commercial opportunity. Because you'll agree with me on this. Christmas promises and delivers on so much. And if you've unwrapped it, if you've enjoyed it and, and you experience it every year, you know what it promises and you know what it delivers, don't you? And there's a part of us, and, and again, we're in the church, so we know, we know what this feels like. There's a part of us that has grown very protective over Christmas, haven't we? We feel as if, and maybe we worry that something might be taken away or something may be lost, the true spirit and the meaning, and we get really protective over it. The same reason you get protective over your loved ones and over your children, your, your family, because we really know how important it is. And there's something in us that, that just, we don't want to worry about it. We just kind of do, and we just kind of get lost in the, in the mess that often comes along with this year. Now, this message is not a call to arms about saving Christmas, rather the opposite you see, all of my life, all of my life, and I, it's because I was born in the generation I was born with, and, and I might make a big deal about this more than it should be, but all of my life, I've heard that Christmas is under attack, about how Christmas is being threatened. I've read these headlines, there's a war on Christmas, and I feel like it all comes to a head with Starbucks and their coffee, what color their cups are every year, and then that just blows out to something else. But I digress. This message is not about that. Thank God, it's not about that. If I ever preach a sermon on that, then please help me uh, figure out what, what's going on in my mind. But, and I don't mean to be insensitive, but maybe that really concerns you. And I'm not saying that there isn't a real movement in, in the world that does oppose the season. I'm not saying that isn't real, because it is. But what I notice is that there is a fear of losing this precious sacred season. It's like we feel like we've got to run to the defense every year so much that it takes away from the joy that we otherwise could enjoy. But where does that fear come from? Contrary to popular belief, it's not new. We think that it's just a 20th, 21st century fear, but it's not. People, and this is really surprising as I did some research this past couple of weeks, it really kind of opened my eyes. People have been worrying about losing Christmas for a long time. People have been writing about it and developing story around this idea for centuries, which confirms, I think, that Christmas brings something that is so precious, so sacred, so saving, the thought of having it diluted is deeply troubling. And it is. The notion that Christmas is worth protecting and preserving has been around for a long time. The fear that somehow, someway, it may fade away. And there's a popular story. It really is all about this, that you've read it, you've watched different versions of it. Published in 1843, the great Charles Dickens, one of his most famous works, perhaps is his most famous work, is The Christmas 
Carol, or a Christmas Carol. Now, you know the story starring Ebenezer Scrooge, everybody's favorite Christmas curmudgeon. Now, maybe you don't know this, but in the time, uh, England had been reevaluating its Christmas traditions, and there was concern, think about this, all these years ago, there was a concern that Christmas would soon be a thing of the past. Dickens, of course, wrote a story of one Ebenezer Scrooge who was too busy, too rich, too otherwise invested to take part in the Christmas season. A commentary, of course, on many, of, of, of many in Dickens' time. Scrooge, of course, as the story goes, eventually succumbs to a force that was too powerful for him to resist. A spirit that overcame his greed, his indifference, his selfishness, and outright sin. Huh. Dickens' work had a tremendous impact, spearheading a sort of Christmas revival in Victorian England, popularizing and cementing many of the newer Christmas traditions in his day that we continue to uphold, family gatherings, seasonal fruit, food and drink, dancing games, festive generosity. Isn't it, isn't it amazing that Dickens' book expresses a fear of losing Christmas, but it also exclaims that Christmas can never lose? Now, you would think it would say Christmas can never be lost, but no, there's a spirit in Christmas that is working in this world, and it, or he, cannot lose. Of course, there's another story that is similar in theme that we know very well. In 1957, Theodore Gisele, or better known as Dr. Seuss, wrote the famous and wonderful How the Grinch Stole Christmas. But wouldn't the story, and shouldn't the story be really, it, wouldn't it be better titled, how the Grinch could not steal Christmas? I mean, he ransacked every home. He took the packages, the boxes, and bags. He took the Who's Feast. He took the Who Pudding. He took the Roast Beast. But he did not steal Christmas. He couldn't. Yeah, he returned all the stuff at the end, but what happened at the end of the story? Before he even came down from the mountain, the Who's gather in the town and sing Dahu Forest because Christmas came anyways. And promise and empower and spirit and in presence, just like it always did, just like it always will. They didn't need him to come back into town with the sleigh and the presents. They had it. Because it came anyway. So what is the conclusion to both these classic stories that express concern over losing something? Christmas is too big to fail. It's beyond its enemies' reach and grasp to overcome. Try as they might. Christmas, and more importantly, its message cannot be and will not be toned down or forgotten. The promise and power of Christmas is just too great, too prevalent and persuasive to ever lose its momentum. Now, call me naive, and maybe it's just that Christmas makes me even more idealistic than I already am. Y'all know by now, I don't give too much room for a lot of the fear-mongering that goes on in the world, because... All it wants to do is take root in my brain. I'm not saying that there, aren't a lot, there isn't a lot to be concerned about or be you know, aware of, uh, but this goes beyond Christmas. With regard to the church and with Christianity, with the, with, with the wonder or concern that God's people would be able to endure something, that God's people might be able to endure anything, the idea that maybe he would will that we go through a trial or two, the idea that he's involved in every aspect of creation, we worry about that. We're concerned about how sovereign he is. We're concerned about the future of Christianity, the future of the church, and Christmas is just a small portion of that, isn't it? 
I'm not underestimating that there is opposition. I'm not doubting that there aren't those who stand against what I stand for. And don't get me wrong, the devil would love to see it go away and keep it away. But try as he might, it will never happen. No matter how many minions and monsters he enlists and employs on this earth, Christmas and all it stands for, Christianity and the church and all that we represent and embody will never go away. We may go away. I may go away. But the church will not be stopped, let alone erased or canceled. Hell cannot stop it. So we, though we are naturally afraid and worried and concerned, should we be? Now, being a pastor, people send me a lot of stuff. Um, not y'all, but just people out there. People send me a lot of stuff, and, and, and they usually are attached with messages like this. If we don't do something... The church and Christianity are at risk to being marginalized and silenced. And they say things like, have you read this? Have you watched this? Have you heard this? And this year, there's been no shortage of those sorts of concerns and those sorts of attachments. Not to be rude, but usually when somebody says, have you heard this or read this? You should watch this or you should read this. I rarely do. No offense. Not that I don't take the concern seriously, but it's that I don't want to legitimize something that only aims to steal and replace the spirit of God's power over my heart. See, here's the thing. The devil would love to overcome us with fear and dread and pessimism and anxiety and dismay. He hopes every day you believe it and you give into it. He hopes you give up. He loves seeing us pull our hair out over what they're doing to the world. He's trying hard. More on you than he is the world. He would love to detach us all from the hope and the faith and the love and the peace and the joy that Christmas offers us and guarantees us. Now, the thing about the Christmas spirit, it's not dependent on any man or maiden institution. It exists over and against them all. Christmas, Christianity, and the church will only be marginalized and silenced if we believe these lies and change our approach. Are there those who want to do away with Christianity? Of course, there always have been, always will be, but it'll never work. Here's the thing, usually we Christians get really worked up about silencing them in the process, we get super nervous and strung out and on edge. And there may be some in my profession that think their job is to call those people out who are doing this stuff, but they're never gonna listen to me, so why would I worry about it? That's not my beat. My conviction and my calling, my passion is to see the church and to see Christians resting and at peace, calm and secure in the power of Christ. I don't go to fight a battle against people that aren't going aren't to listen to me anyway. My job and my calling, people in my profession, our job is to remind us all that we have peace and calm and security and a rest in the power of Christ and the hand of God. And our goal is to be committed to this mission of evangelism with eternal optimism. So I choose to use my preaching and feel led, to, of course, by the scriptures to signal a greater word. And it all comes to this. Christians, our message is more powerful when we walk in the power of our God. Don't you agree? That when we walk with our heads lifted up in, in the power of a God who has never lost a battle and is not afraid of anybody, he is unrivaled and he is all-powerful. 
And our message is more powerful when we aren't on going to defense against people that otherwise aren't going to listen anyway. But when we go to a world with the confidence in the power of our God. Christians, our gospel is more compelling when we walk in this confidence. That we have good news of great joy for all people. So why are we afraid? Why are we worried? Why are we discouraged? Why are we downcast? Why are we dismayed? Yes, I read the news this morning. Yes, I paid attention to what's going on in the world. But guess what? The good news is still greater. And I am confident that if God allowed me to see all this, the good news is enough to see me through it. And that my light is too important. God's light through me is too important to settle and succumb to something far unbefitting for a Christian. Christians, our hope is more brilliant and brighter when we walk in the boldness of our God. Because here's the thing, Christian. If someone came to you and said, hell is just around the corner. I mean, it's right there. You might not even see it. You might fall into it. What's our response? I am covered by the blood of Christ. I am saved by the work of Jesus. So even if I have to get right as close as possible, I can't fall in there. Bold. Is that what describes Christians in today's world? We need to stop acting as if these tiny little kings and tiny little kingdoms of man have anything on the king of kings. And we need to start walking in faith and knowledge because Christmas is the coronation of a brand new king for earth and nobody and nothing can ever take away his crown or his throne. Because after all, Christianity is the original dragon-slaying story. You know, with every generation, we have an affinity for these stories of dragons and dragon-slaying because we all have an enemy. And we all worry if we can stand a chance against this enemy. And we love seeing on screens or on pages dragons being slain because we love having a visualization of our true enemy being conquered. Gives us hope. I know that Revelation 12 is not your typical Christmas chapter for candlelight gatherings, but maybe it should be. It tells a woman who is giving birth to a baby who would be king and a dragon doing every evil act to stop him. Of course, the first few chapters, the first few verses of chapter 12 are an allegory of the redemption story that God had started with Israel. The woman, though we might think of Mary, is better understood as Israel. The nation of Israel that went through a long quest to bring a Messiah into the world that led to the selection of Mary who would embody the whole nation and give birth to its Savior as personified in chapter 12 verse 1 and 2. And of course there's this dragon, this dragon that seems to have earth, semblance of earthly power, semblance of you know, ability to conquer or ability to overcome. And it all comes to a head in verse number four. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. See, verse four is an incredible reminder of what Satan tried to do that first Christmas. He tried 
Remember the story told by Matthew? How the stars in the heavens begin to point the way for the wise men from the pagan eastern kingdoms. And those stars led them to the Messiah. Listen to Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in, the, in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star, and we have come to worship him. So we see this conflict arising. There's a guy named Herod the king who is the big deal around town. You have these wise men from far off who see a star of another king, and they show up and inquire of the little king where the big king is, the actual king. And as you would expect, verse 3 tells us that Herod heard this and he was troubled in all Jerusalem. They should have been excited. They should have been celebrating. But what does that mean? Herod was afraid of what this could mean for his kingdom. And all Jerusalem speaks to the religious leaders who were afraid of what it could mean for their little kingdoms. Wise men representing the kings of the east claim that nature has led them to Jesus. A remarkable contrast to this fallen world. Yet God working through it anyway. You see, in Revelations, this seeks to capture Satan's rage, not literally, but suggesting that he rounded up his evil forces to combat God's intervention in the world. If you're going to use the stars to point the way to the Savior, I'll take them out if I have to. I'll make it as dark as possible. I'll turn every light off if it means keeping people from getting to the Messiah. Hmm. He roused King Herod, who was friends with another king. Not just any king, but the king, Caesar Augustus. Herod informed Caesar that there were claims of a Jewish Messiah being born, explaining how this could cause an uprising and could spell doom for not only Herod, but for Rome and Caesar as well. So Caesar sanctioned the Roman guards to act on Herod's command. The chapter tells us, now, this is Mary and Joseph. When, when the wise men departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So Herod went to work. He called Caesar and said, Hey, buddy, we got a problem. I need you to give me Roman centurions to do some dirty work for me. we got to turn the lights out. We've got to scare people into submission. We can't let them thinking that a Messiah being born means anything good. We've got to turn that off and, shout and, and shut that out. We've got to find this Messiah and kill him if he actually is a Messiah. But we've got to make sure people are scared of us. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children. Now, I put an asterisk on the male part because this, here's the thing. Roman centurions did not, did not, weren't really thorough. They didn't trust you if you said, oh, you have a daughter, well, we won't come into your house. Do you think they might, do you think they, they, they actually, you know, respected that? History tells us that they didn't worry if it was actually a boy or a girl. They didn't worry if it was two years old or 18 months or two, two, two and a half years old. If it looked like it could be potentially in this category, they were murdered. I mean, that kind of throws a blanket on the whole Christmas story, doesn't it? That was Satan's goal. But he didn't stop there. He continued to use his minions, Herod's sons, and Caesar, because he was concerned of potential messianic uprising, called a governor to rule the land called Pontius Pilate. 
We do this every Easter and throughout the year, but we know the story. Pilate and Herod, the religious leaders, and even Jesus' own followers, plotted to kill him because Satan was doing all he could to turn out the lights. But their plotting and their planning proved in vain, didn't it? And it actually proved rather counterintuitive. Their attempt to stop Jesus and erase him from history are the reason, inadvertently and unintentionally, but they're the reason why history remembers Jesus so well and why his movement got a kickstart. Isn't that amazing? His enemies are why he's more alive today than ever than he ever was because he was buried, but he rose again. They tried to stop him. They didn't subtract him from history. They multiplied his presence and his movement in ways they could have never imagined or intended. Isn't that astounding? Isn't that remarkable? And these men, Herod and Caesar and the others, why do we even remember them? For their glory and greatness? No, they're just footnotes in the story of Jesus. We bring them up every Christmas, and then we don't talk about them again. Now, does Satan continue to combat against God's work? Of course. Ever since that first Christmas, there has been a war going on. Beginning on that first Christmas, there was a war that broke out. Revelation 7 through 12 chronicles that battle that began in the heavens, but we are reminded that Satan proved no match for the angels of God. And even though he was cast down to the earth, verse 10 says, salvation and strength, the kingdom of God, the power of Christ have come and nothing can take them away. We overcome by the blood of Jesus, by the word of God. We have nothing to be afraid or worry over. Hmm. There are whispers of defeat and fears of loss. These are mere accusations made by a defeated foe. He knows his time is short. He works diligently to discourage, but we know that our time is eternal so we can have courage and endure patiently through whatever we face. And we may, we may be accused of being naive to bad news, but we should be applauded for believing Noel, for believing the good news, for believing that we don't have to be afraid of anything if we believe Christmas over everything. So have no fear. Christmas will never fail nor fade away. In fact, Christmas expresses the persistence and the preeminence of our God who worked through Israel. As much as it failed, he continued to work through her shortcomings and her sin to set the stage to the extent that he had to continue to persevere and redeem Israel and the rest of the world but God was not exhausted through this time. He was just setting things in place. And when the fullness of time had come, Christmas came and Christmas has remained. You know, Christmas is an invitation for us all to escape the fear and dread of this world and find ourselves in a kingdom to come. Be found by the king who has already come. 
Christmas brings us all together around a single purpose and pathway. It offers us a pathway to God. It offers us a place in God's family. In Christmas, we, we find, we feel like, and find our true selves. We can be and are the children of God. And that's why Christmas embodies the true heart of Christianity. Yeah, there's more to what it means to follow Jesus, but Christmas is the basic premise. We belong to God, and we would be completely blind to it if not for the light and revelation of Christmas. What Christmas reveals paves the way for it makes possible for every other part of Christianity. And isn't it true that if every season was like Christmas, if what's in the air now was in the air always as we breathe in and breathe out, we would have a much greater evangelistic impact on our world, wouldn't we? So as we face a world that is full of doom and gloom, fear and dread, may Christmas remind us and make us eternally hopeful. May our message this year be as the heralds saying on that first Christmas night, the dragon is slain, the king has come, salvation is here, and Christmas is here to stay, and only we can keep it away. Nobody else can. The prophet Isaiah preached the Christmas message 700 years before it actually came. So I think we can continue to preach it all these years after. He was confident in its arrival, and we can be confident in its remaining presence and power. All these years later, we would do the world a favor if we repeated the message that Isaiah gave his generation. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God, or God is here, and he's here to stay. And when people doubt, when people worry, when people say, but them and those and that and what about and what if and what are we going to do? When people say, I don't know if I can have that kind of faith. I don't know if I believe that all things can be that well. We can respond to them. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He's been there. He saw that. He's not faint. He's not growing weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He is large and in charge. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Christmas is here to stay. In your hearts, all around us. So in a world that likes to talk about all the stuff that's just gone wrong, Let's remind them of the thing that has gone, has went our way and will always stay favor and grace from God. Good news of great joy for all people that we can have peace, that God is with us, and nothing can change that. That will make a merry Christmas even merrier, I think. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this reminder of the greatest news. Thank you for always being with us and for us, even when we doubt and wonder and worry. Lord, there is a lot of fear in our world today, and understandably, there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of concern, understandably. But if we really took time to think about your sovereignty, your power, and your promises, that what you have delivered to us will never be taken from us. What a difference we might could make in a world that is so desperate 
for something different, something better than the rest is offering him. God, I pray you might would encourage us, use us to herald this good news. Lord, if there's somebody in the house today that just needs to be lifted up in their spirits and reminded that you're in control and they can unwrap the Christmas spirit today, right now, wherever they are, whoever they are, whatever they've done, they can be your child. They can find their true self in you and be found in you. God, I pray you would show them that there's a place for them. There always will be. And there's nothing the dragons of this world can do to stop it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.